Jeff Deutsch is the director of Chicago Seminary Co-op Bookstores, one of the finest in the world. And he, in a new book called In Praise of Good Bookstores, pays loving tribute to one of our most important and enduring civic institutions. He considers how qualities like space, time, abundance, and community find expression in a good bookstore. And exploring why bookstores matter, Jeff draws on his lifelong experience, his lifelong experience as a bookseller, but also his upbringing as an Orthodox Jew. This spiritual and cultural heritage instilled in him a reverence for reading, not as a means to a living, but as an essential part of a meaningful life. Central to his arguments for the necessity of bookstores is the incalculable value of browsing. Since when we are deep in the act of looking at the shelves, we move through space as though we are inside the mind itself, immersed in self-reflection. In the age of one-click shopping, this is no extraordinary defense of bookstores, but rather an urgent account of why they are essential places of discovery, refuge, and fulfillment that enrich the communities that are lucky enough to have them welcome and I'm lucky enough to have you, Jeff. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you so much, Nigel. And thank you for all of the great work you do advocating on behalf of the industry at large. Uh, why? What? What makes a good bookstore? <laughs> what makes a good bookstore? <laughs> uh, it's, a great, it's a great question. And one of the, I've been very privileged to uh, travel extensively in support of this book and have many public conversations. And one of the questions that comes up frequently is, tell me about the bad bookstores. What is a good bookstore? I want to hear about the bad bookstores. There's no such thing. There actually are no bad bookstores, at least to my mind. Uh, and in fact, there are a lot of great bookstores that aren't capital G, capital B, good bookstores in my estimation. It's a very specific concept I'm going for. Uh, and it's uh, similar to the good society or the good life, uh, these concepts that um, that we use to, to sketch out an ideal. Uh, it's it's an ideal of what a bookstore is meant to do and meant to be. And the first thing that a, a good bookstore uh, does is sustains itself through books alone. The idea that a, a store can carry just books and that those books are uh, selected, filtered first and then selected and then assembled by a bookseller who uh, has truck with their community and through that dialogue creates a space that both reflects and uh, establishes community, that's a good bookstore. And we uh, don't really have a model for that in the 21st century because there isn't an economic model that could sustain a retail bookstore. And we need to figure out a different way to build stores whose browsing experience is their primary product. You, uh, One of the quotes at the beginning of the book has Richard DeBury saying that uh, no man can serve both books and mammon. Right. So right. How, how are you supposed to tackle that one then? Right. Well, I think that there's really just a question of how uh, how we value cultural goods and how we value inquiry and how we value literature and poetry and ideas. And the fact is book selling and book publishing were set up as market driven industries and that is certainly the case that quite a bit of it is market driven, whether it's bestsellers or celebrity biographies or certain cookbooks or uh, uh, diet books, things of that sort. Those are commodities that are meant to be bought and sold. 
They're meant to be bought and sold for a season and sold quickly. And by a season, it could be three years or three months. But whatever the case, they're, they're uh, books of the moment, not books of all time. Uh, but they're books uh, that are n not published for those reasons, and they're not market-driven. And those are the books that I'm talking about. And the bookstores that sell those books are the bookstores that I'm celebrating. And so these are books that sell slowly. They're books that are written for the ages or uh a little bit deeper than just the moment and they're books that are not meant to turn a profit and there are publishers who publish these books and there are also publishers who publish both uh market-driven books and cultural uh cultural items and my argument if there is any is that we should separate those two types of books and build a different model to finance the books that are meant for cultural purposes and not merely uh, economic returns. You say should, so that's what, more government funding? No, not government funding. I think that that's unrealistic, uh, uh, though uh, certainly that's one possibility. So the, uh, I couldn't speak to publishing itself, but I can speak to book selling. So uh, I operate the uh, seminary co-op bookstores uh, in, on the south side of Chicago, 60 plus year old institution. And for 58 years, it was a member owned cooperative that was a for-profit bookstore. And in 2019, we became the first and we're currently the only not-for-profit bookstore in the country whose mission is book selling. I believe you and I spoke about this uh, on your show when we were still working it out. We hadn't, I think we had maybe just voted to, uh, the membership voted to allow the board to do it, but we hadn't actually done it. This was in 2019. And the idea behind our bookstore and this new model is to say that no reader needs a bookstore in the 21st century to buy books and no bookseller can make a living on book sales alone on the retail margin of book sales alone so do we even need bookstores and if so what for and if so how do we finance them my answer is yes we need bookstores what for for the browsing experience and the community that it creates by having a physical space for books in our in our uh, cities and, and neighborhoods and how do we finance it well there are multiple ways to finance it because once we define the purpose of these stores differently and they're no longer retail endeavors then it's not about buying and selling it's about finding ways to pay for the services that booksellers offer to pay for the um, expertise that uh, booksellers provide to Think about the profession of bookselling as something other than retail and more like cultural work, more like literary work, even potentially more like academic work, uh, research librarians, uh, critics, uh, uh, community builders, all of these elements go into the work of bookselling. And we want to have a, a, an honest conversation about what booksellers are and do, and also find a way to um, take pride in the work. I, I don't want to apologize anymore for the whys and efficiencies that make us great. Uh, and the part of why I feel very comfortable saying that is after 30 years, almost 30 years next year, as a bookseller, I came to the seminary co-op at, at, at a time when it was struggling. And I knew from my time as a customer starting 30 years ago, that this store is uh, the platonic ideal of a bookstore as far as I'm concerned, and it's its own best argument on behalf of itself. It's a store that carries 100,000 titles, uh, mostly uh, academic scholarly presses and small presses, a lot of underrepresented authors, uh, and they've been doing that for years and sells books very slowly, very patiently, and has privileged the browsing experience. And I thought, 
huh, well, if this is the case and so many people love this store and it's created a more meaningful life for so many of our patrons, certainly we can find a way to finance it. And it's not something I would have the uh, hubris to say I could build today. Uh, but certainly if I'm uh, stewarding it on behalf of, an in of a community of other people who built it, then I think this is certainly something worth fighting for. Mm -hmm. So are you thinking of something like it's more like a, a kind of a club membership or, an, or a membership of some sort of cultural institution that you would just pay an annual fee for? Is that what you're thinking? Um, there are multiple ways to do it. So certainly that's part of it. Um, there are certainly ways for, you know, uh, cultural partners and publishers uh, to put advertising dollars into reaching our audience. And we would only do it with partners that we uh, whose work we believe in, you know, uh, Harvard University Press or uh, Biblioasis or, you know, and with, and with places like Book Forum going out of business, I think there are opportunities for that. So what, you know, why do publishers want a bookstore? They don't need a bookstore for sales. Uh, they need a yeah. bookstore for places of discovery. Um, they might need it for author relationships. So are there ways for them to support us in, in that capacity uh, for author events, for, uh, you know, we, we have a partnership, for instance, with the Chicago Humanities Festival, and they don't, uh, we're not their vendor merely who sells books, we're their the programming partner, and they pay us a fee to help program. And mm -hmm. uh, we do a similar thing with the university where we're at the on the campus of the University of Chicago, one of the two stores, and we do a lot of work programming, helping figure out course books, helping to bring faculty authors uh, the work to the public and there, there are fees there. There are also uh, collections that we build for school libraries and personal libraries. And it's not merely they will buy the books from us at full price, which of course they will and they should. It's also that they will pay us for the curatorial services of, of building a mm -hmm. collection. Mm -hmm. And then there are, we, we've received money from individuals uh, for don with donations, and then we're not, we're a nonprofit, but we're not a 501, so there are no tax implications to any of this. There's no uh, wealth management here, um, but we've received significant dollars from our community of people who say, I believe in this work, I want to support it, the way that one might a politician, uh, you know, a, a, <laughs> and they believe in yeah. the cause, right? Um, and my, my book, frankly, In Praise of Good Bookstores was meant almost as a campaign book to say, here's the cause, everyone. Uh, and I'm not <laughs> talking about it. Now give money to this institution and help build institutions in your own neighborhood. Yeah. If you believe in them. I, I, I had a great talk at uh, Iowa City at Prairie Lights. And I was in conversation with Jan, who's the co-owner there. And it was a wonderful crowd, 50 or so people. And, and that store is a beacon. And it was people who helped build it and uh, people in the publishing world and uh, teaching at the writing program. And I said, this is a this is a community good. It's a public good. You all, yeah. uh, you know, this is not Jan's responsibility to keep this place going for the next hundred yes. years. You all are responsible yeah. for it. How do we change that? And that is where the government, I, I should say, municipalities can certainly help. Uh, Chicago yeah. embarrassingly offered, uh, I don't remember what the number was, but it was um, hundreds of millions of dollars, I believe, if not more, to Amazon to build their headquarters. Yeah. Uh, because it would do what? It would drive uh, business. It would bring jobs. Sure, I understood. They're spending money though on a private corporation coming. Uh, certainly, they can do uh, you know, well so that they can underpay their employees. Well, that's 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 an important point, uh, and that's really the second thing that um, and I'm going to say something controversial uh, that's really important to say out loud though. So the first thing that my my goal uh, is to make sure that the seminary co-op 
outlives us all and that there is a model of bookselling that privileges the work that the seminary co-op has been doing for years well before i started here the second um, priority is to professionalize bookselling and to build it to make it more than a, a retail position which retail is an, is very noble work nothing against it but it's just not <clears throat> it's not retail uh, and the only way that bookstores are, are have been making it is by selling non-book items paying yeah. their staff minimum wage, not for many owners, not taking a salary themselves, and then only selling books that sell quickly. And which means that it's, it's rather homogenous what, what bookstores might carry. And the fact is that Amazon pays better than just about any bookstore in the country. And so Amazon does underpay their workers, but they actually pay more than bookstores and sellers are not right. paying wages. And it is, it is a crisis and it was, it's been awful for years, but it's getting worse and worse and it's unconscionable at this point. Uh, and you know, one of the things that I've been very lucky, I've been in this business, as I said, almost 30 years, I've been able to, to make a living and not a great one but you know i've been able to make a living uh, as a bookseller and i would hope that a young bookseller someone in their 20s or 30s who wants to do that for their career uh, my hope is that they can do that and not have to struggle the way that my colleagues and i did of just trying to you know put together a few jobs a few different jobs to make it work and uh and really never be able to have this you know uh middle middle class life of you know pay off your yeah. student loan uh, have a kid, maybe maybe buy a house if you're lucky, and maybe a car if you're lucky. You know, like that's just not that's not available to um, to many books to most booksellers who are not independently wealthy. You know, I hear the same thing about publishing. Is that yep. despite and this is interesting. You know, James Don talks about the pub, the big five publishing houses in London along the Thames having these marble palaces, and yet. The people at the in the lower echelons are getting shit for pay. Yeah, I've got two two competing thoughts on that. The first one is <clears throat> as bad as publishers' pay is, and it's bad. Uh, booksellers' pay is worse, and we need to address that. <laughs> and we want to at least be as bad as publishers, or at least be as bad as nonprofit. Uh, we sure. do like to have that. But then the second thing is that we actually don't see the publishers as we see them as partners, <clears throat> and that the. The solution is really a, a collaborative solution where we come together with authors and agents and anyone else in the industry. And this is where I really applaud you, Nigel, and the work that you're doing, because you think about the industry holistically and you really uh, try and bring voices from every every part of it, whether it's critics or booksellers or library work or publishers or all, you bring all of that together and you really help us see ourselves in that way. And what would happen if we have th this community uh, and looked out to the world and said, and to those, whether it's people, you know, foundations or people with, with um, means who made their money off of some of the work that we've done even. Uh, I think about uh, Silicon Valley has broken some things by accident. Uh, maybe they can help fix it. Uh, well, because really there isn't a lot of money in the industry and there aren't, if anyone's getting rich off of it and we think about publishers, somebody might say like Penguin Random House is doing really well. Well, I'm not talking about the Prince Harry book. I'm not talking about no. Star Wars books. I'm talking about books that are not doing well for Penguin Random House that are the mid list and the backlist and the academic books that they don't have to publish and they want to publish them. They're doing them because yeah. they also believe in the cultural work and we all are in the same boat and everyone is trying to find their ways to you know, drive sales in order to make it work. Obviously, there's some major media companies who own, I mean, this is problematic, the media companies who own publishers and that's a different 
different conversation. I write about that a little bit in the third chapter on value and the history of that conglomeration. But ultimately, that's that's a problem that I is outside of my purview and, and to some extent my interest. I think that I really am focused uh, almost entirely on bookstores themselves. You know, talking about value and what I've been doing, I have having trouble trying to establish that what I'm doing has value with right, other people. Right. right. Just maybe like you are, just in the sense that, you know, someone like Joe Rogan gets two, you know, right. I mean, maybe everyone talks about this because it's so it's so mind blowing. But to, to even talk in the realm of a hundredth, one hundredth or less than a hundredth of yeah. what kind of money this it's it's just a non-starter. Right. And prior to my taking this plunge into the uh, love of books, really, uh, I was making about 10 to 15 times the money doing something that wasn't quite as fulfilling. But I, I think that's your that's one of your big challenges is that society just doesn't just doesn't value it. And uh, how are you going to address that? Yeah, I appreciate that question. I, I don't I don't necessarily agree with the premise that society doesn't value it. I think the first thing is that we have done a very poor job of articulating our value and our rhetoric has been um, frankly inaccurate. I don't think it's been dishonest. I think we're all honest, but it's been inaccurate. We're not retailers. Uh, there isn't there isn't a market for this. And one does not need to be anti-capitalist to believe in extra economic value and services outside of the marketplace. So we can right. embrace capitalism or socialism. It doesn't matter what the, your economic approach is. There is extra economic value and uh, and we all put money toward that. However, booksellers and many publishers and certainly book distributors aren't making a case from cultural value that is constructive and collaborative. I mean, we like to, we complain a lot about it and we all lament it. And frankly, we've been lamenting it since the dawn of bookselling. Yes. Hundreds of years old. This is not a new thing. Uh, yes. You know, I, I, a friend of mine, uh, who I think you've had on your show, Levi Stahl, uh, uh, who's in publishing yes. at the University of Chicago yes. Press, uh, he, he tells the joke that, you know, the first book that Gutenberg uh, printed was the Bible and the second book was on the death of, of book publishing. And so, I mean, it's true with book selling. I mean, we all love to complain and I'm not yeah. interested in that. You'll notice that my book is called In Praise of Good Bookstores. It yes. is not a lamentation. It's a celebration. No. I think there's something important about bringing the enthusiasm that is such a critical component of what booksellers do and really anyone in the book industry, but certainly booksellers and bringing that to on behalf of the cause of bookselling itself and bookstores themselves. Yes, yes. Well, one of the things that you really do have to sell, as you referred to, was this the magic of browsing mm -hmm. and why it's so valuable. Maybe you could address that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I can speak just from my own experience about the uh, the value of the browse. And I even yesterday, so I, I spend my life in bookstores. I've been very lucky. Uh, sometimes when uh, you're running a bookstore, it's hard to see beyond the, the dusty shelves or the work that needs to be done. Uh, so I, I went to the University of Chicago library yesterday to do my own browsing for about an hour. And I just wandered the stacks. And I, I, I'm often struck by the paradoxes of of the browse, right? Uh, we walk in and we are we feel completely solitary, but yet there are people all around us. We walk in and time dilates 
entirely. We can see like millennia, but also contracts. We're just completely in the moment. And there are some of these these um, paradoxes that, to me, help deepen uh, the human experience. Uh, yeah. Help us see not just outside our cells, but uh, inside ourselves, and not just outside our moment, but inside our moment. Like these paradoxes about how all that works. The the paradox between the community and right. the solitude. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All yeah. of that. And I'm interested in book spaces. So I don't think of bookstores in a vacuum. I also think about libraries and libraries have become um, more diluted as well. We don't have libraries that carry books and books only uh, as much as we used to. And, uh, and I appreciate all the services that libraries provide. But there's something about wandering in spaces of books. And I've, I count my own my home library is part of this. My friend's libraries. I go to a, a Goodwill and I, I love browsing there. Um, it's even, my favorite. Even a, right. Even a bad bookstore, quote unquote, uh, there's no such thing, I think. But even no, a, there a mediocre bookstore, I, I will spend, and a mediocre library, uh, I will. Sp I can go book by book and, and find something to appreciate about the experience of browsing, of just the contemplation that happens, the rumination, yeah. Yeah. The, the internal, the, the way that we uh, just expand so much internally. And uh, yeah. it, it really is, it's a palliative. And, and it, there's something about it that uh, I think could, could heal the world, not to get too idealistic. <laughs> um, well, this is uh, what I, I did want to bring this up. I mean, I do find, uh, I find uh, Alberto Manguel's prose a little bit purple, a little bit too purple. Uh -huh. And yet, I would, you know, thinking about this, your prose is pretty purple at times. I am purple. Amen. But, but. <laughs> and I love Manguel. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard not to be purple when you talk about something that's as important and significant and meaningful as this, isn't it? Well, I think it's, I appreciate you saying all that. And I, I, the, uh, uh, guilty as charged on purple prose and guilty as charged <laughs> on, on loving Alberto Manguel's purple prose. Uh, but here's yeah. what I'll say about uh, Manguel and I uh, have this in common, which is I, I, I think that the that we've become quite cynical in, in ways that are not healthy or helpful uh, as writers. And and and, and when, when we're reading outside of our moment, I, my, my prose is, is not any more purple than uh, than the prose that I'm, I'm reading. In fact, it's less purple. It's more rugged. I don't read, I mean, I read plenty of contemporary work, but I also read plenty of uh, older work and work from other countries and other times. And uh, so does Manguel, uh, and so do many of the people I, I, I cite. Uh, and including like this past weekend, I was reading the Talmud, uh, which I, I, I cite a bit in the book. Uh, I think it's an underread, one of these underread um, literary treasures, uh, the Talmud. There is so much beautiful writing, beautiful stories in there and uh stories about uh you know great rabbi dies and and after after rabbi Meir dies parables ceased to be written uh these beautiful no notions uh there's talk and i think i have this in the book about um the duration of twilight i write about in the time chapter mm, and yeah. there's a there's this image of uh, how, how long is the duration of twilight? Well, as long as a drop of blood on the tip of a sword becomes two drops. As yes. long as it takes for the drop of, of blood to become two drops, that's the duration of twilight. It's, it's purple, is, purple is all get out, but it is 
gorgeous. It's yeah. just gorgeous. And well, well, let, let's not be so cynical that we can't enjoy gorgeous writing. Uh, I mean, you read somebody like Virginia Woolf or, or Nabokov, and they're purple too, if, if unless they're just exceptionally uh, uh, felicitous in, the, in their use of language. And I think it's the latter. Not that I, I would yeah. never compare myself to them, but no. certainly I, I, I would love to see more writing that is um, uh, risks being purple because it's earnest. Yeah, that's nicely put. Yeah. Uh, Stendhal comes to mind for me. Yes. I but, just read his book on love, which oh, is isn't the, it the weirdest spectacular. Thing. Oh. It's one of the weirdest things I've ever read. And one of the best things I've ever read on love. Bring back weird books. I wouldn't say weird. You know, you exchange passages from that. It's on fire. Crystallization, but, right? He writes about crystallization. Yes, yes, in the Beautiful. salt mine. Well, but yeah. then he goes into all of this, like there are four different types of countries and those those countries all have these dispositions. And I'm like, what is he talking about? It's <laughs> yeah, the weirdest thing ever, but, it, but it's really <laughs> okay. fun. I don't remember <laughs> that weird part. You don't remember that? Oh, it's fun. <laughs> it is fun. Okay, now tell me about slow time then. Yeah, I mean, this is the time in which I think the browse occurs and uh, the time in which uh, great reading occurs. And uh, one of the things that's, I think, clear to all of us is that we're so hurried and so productive. And this was certainly, uh, very, I mean, it was true before the pandemic shut down, but I think it became obvious to everyone during shutdown for different reasons, uh, in part because we were in a almost a timeless and I don't mean timeless as in uh, the way we've talked about it um, in the past. We used to talk about timeless as like eternal or enduring, but uh, there's also timeless, like just without time. And uh, it was what, what a strange uh, thing for all of us to have gone through. And to recognize that we're rushing and we're, you know, we're hurrying so much. And what are we hurrying for? We're hurrying to create time, to, expel, to expend time. Uh, and really, if the point of living is... Uh, to create time to live more meaningfully, then we should not only value, but work to create slow time, uh, time that, that feels feels like uh, like a Sabbath might, which is what, uh, from my background as an Orthodox Jew, uh, you, you'd work work for the weekend in a different way than in, in uh, you know, like a 20, you know, 20, 20th century American, you know, you know, pop culture where you're working for the weekend to have a, you know, get drunk and have parties. You work for the weekend because that's sacred time and the sacred time is not really uh, of this of this world. It's, it's, a, it's a portal to another world, a holier world. And there's a beautiful prayer that I say every Saturday night called Havdalah, which is about separation, where we separate the moment between uh, common time and holy time. Uh, and it's a beautiful, beautiful idea. But what if you can carry that holy time with you throughout the week or throughout your days? Uh, and that's that's what, uh, as a reader and as a, a bookstore browser, uh, I feel like I have access to this holy time uh, way more frequently than uh, I did as an Orthodox Jew when it was uh, holidays and, and Saturdays. Okay, tell me about this holy time. Like, what, what does it feel like and what? how do you get to it? I mean, the holy time is what connects us to uh, to our history, to our deepest values. It's who we are when we're, you know, we talked about Stendhal and love. It's what we feel when we're in love or what we feel when we're, we feel awe or reverence when we behold something beautiful or when we suffer deeply or we're grieving. I mean, we talk about, you know, grief as uh, something that, like, that creates meaning and connects us to 
everything we've loved and lost and uh, and why we're here. And th these are the things that, uh, you know, Netflix, I'm sure, has great, great content. And I mean, one could go a whole life without reading a book and live a meaningful life. So, you know, you don't necessarily need to read books, um, mm -hmm. but books are these concentrates of, of, of meaning and of knowledge and of um, a beauty and accessing those to me uh, seems like a, I wouldn't say a shortcut, but uh, a, a, a certain way to live a more meaningful life. Why is accessing this beauty and why is it more meaningful? Um, well, I, I, I'm saying more meaningful compared to things that we might pursue around pleasure or around amnesia, like relieving ourselves of pain and forgetting and anesthetizing ourselves like those kinds of things are ways to avoid who we are and and, and to live live profoundly you know you asked the question why and I, I don't i don't mean to be prescriptive it's not for everyone in fact there are people who've been through things that they don't want to they don't want to relive and i'm not i, I certainly wouldn't prescribe it to anyone but i again coming from a, a an orthodox jewish background that i am not a believer i, I left the fold a long time ago um, but i was raised in a culture where everything was there to create connection to gods and to god and and humans and that we would find ways to whether it's through charity or through prayer whether it would be through visiting the sick or having reverence for a, a, a rainbow or the uses of the body that that was the world i lived in and it was constant study there were books everywhere and everyone studied all the time and and it what was meant to happen was that we would create a learned populace, not an educated populace, learned people who knew, who understood uh, the ways of the world. And I'm not saying that Orthodox Jews do that. Um, and I'm not saying that, uh, you know, bookstore browsers can do that. But I do think it's, for me anyway, it's been something that is uh, worthwhile to, to attempt and to celebrate and to bring others to. And I think the broader culture can at times certainly to my mind be vapid and about the, our baser desires and about our baser needs and really like these are the pleasures whose verdure fades away and shouldn't we pursue the pleasures whose verdure remains that are really the true pleasure the things that we know that riches are um you know i mean desire leads to more desire uh, and uh, we want to find a satiety that is a true satiety. And again, I don't. I say all of this as I'm. A, I'm just a bookseller, man. I'm not like none of this is like here <laughs> tips for a moral life. I'm just sharing my. No, own but experience. you know what? So trying to remind people like what what they might have experienced too. But if not, if they, some people just want to come in and buy a diet book and and go home and and feel better, and, and that's great. <laughs> yeah. I got no problem with yeah. that. I like Star No, but. I should say that I've been, you know, over the years, I've been, you do mention this in the book, learning for learning's sake. That's yeah. okay. Because I'm trying to figure out, so why the hell am I so fascinated by books? And why yeah. have I been doing this? It, 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 that's the only real answer I can come up with. It's because I'm interested in them yeah. and I want to know more about them. And I haven't learned everything I want to learn about them. But the interesting thing is, you know, I'm pushing you on this meaning of life, and you also refer to understanding the ways of the world. I want you to tell me what those ways of the world are. 
Well, before I do that, I want to just, like you mentioned, learning for learning's sake. And one of the things I, uh, I've talked about in the value chapter is the uh, usefulness of useless knowledge, uh, which is something that came out of the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. And one of my, this is um, uh, uh, Abraham Flexner, uh, who, who uh, was the founding director of it. Um, but one of, one of my favorite writers, uh, and one of, one of the, I want to talk about purple prose, beautiful purple prose, uh, Emil Chorin, the Romanian uh, philosopher and aphorist, he wrote a Socratic midrash that I think is one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. He says, while, while they were preparing the hemlock, Socrates, was learning how to play a new tune on the flute. Yes, right? yes. And somebody says to him, "What? Why? What is the use of that?" Well, yeah, to know yeah. the tune before I die. That's that's it. That's enough. That's it. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. What are the ways of the world? The ways of the world. I, I. What do I know? Again, I'm just a bookseller. But one thing I do know is that we are lucky to find things to love, and everything we love, we're going to lose. And our ability to to uh, find meaning in that which is temporary and to be able to see that which is eternal and to discern the difference and to make peace with our own loss, our own death and the losses in our lives. That, that seems to me pretty, pretty important. But what do I know? Uh, truly, and I'm not, I'm not being coy, uh, but that is how, is how it is for me. And, you know, I, I uh, talk about early on in the book, I talk about stars and blossoming fruit trees, which is a Simone Weil idea where she says stars and blossoming fruit trees, that which is uh, eternal and that which is ephemeral. Uh, give one an equal sense of, of eternity, uh, you know, that, that which that which falls away. Um, and I that sounds like William Blake to me. It's so funny you say that I just reread for like the 500th time Marriage of Heaven and Hell last night. And it is exactly like William Blake. Um, yeah. I was reading him, you know, I was reading him because um, I was thinking about uh, Somebody was talking to me about grief energy, and that you know, grief creates this energy that either is aesthetic or destructive. And I was thinking about the Blake line from *Marriage of Heaven and Hell* about yeah. the, prolif the prolific and the devourer, and what it means for us to take that grief energy and 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 create something as opposed to destroy. Uh, and uh, so that that was my Blake reading last night. Um, which I pulled off my shelf. I've got three copies of it on the shelf, three different versions. I, you know, I've got I've got the Princeton one that has all the beautiful illustrations. I have a smaller Oxford one that I can read easier, and then I have the complete Blake, which is an well. Oxford. You know, in in the book, you mentioned that you mentioned the table, and you say paying attention to the table and the fact that hey, there's there's look, there are all these different versions of the same book. Yeah, that was Homer. Yeah, uh, two different versions of Homer, and I think two of uh, two of uh, Augustine. And this was a but, snapshot. This was the actual table in 2018 or something. And and what does that talk to? Paying attention and slowing down and paying attention to what's there. Yeah, I guess so. Well, and also, um, I mean, again, one of the things that you do is you call attention to this whole world. And so there were three different translations of uh, Homer, and. What a great conversation we're all having as an industry about the the value of translators' work. Uh, yeah. What a great conversation we're having as an industry about the value of translated literature and literature that's not that not just English language. Uh, and how many uh, you know amazing authors are now getting attention yeah. Yeah. might otherwise not have uh, because they're writing in languages that aren't uh, as well read. You know what? I had a conversation many one of my earliest conversations was with Chad Post. Yeah, yeah, many, Chad many does great ago. work. Yeah. Well, yes, and we were talking about the fact of how many of the greatest novels are, in fact, not English. You know, That's quote right. greatest novels in the canon. It's most of them. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah.
Uh, okay. I don't so, know, Nigel. What do you think is the what What do you think is the meaning here? Uh, you've been doing this a lot longer than I have, and you you've thought about this deeply. What do you think is uh, why do we do what we do, and what is the what is the the meaning here? What is the what is that which endures? Uh, what are we trying to get at to live uh, a meaningful life? Well, I think uh, I think part of it has to do with finding out what you're passionate about and then learning about it. That's pretty cliche, I suppose, but that's but what I've done, and and I found it very very fulfilling. So Beautiful. it's it's figuring it out, and then mm -hmm. just uh, you know you're curious about it. Why why am I so crazy about this? Well, let me try and find that out. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Like, why am I so crazy about this? I mean, I think finding the things that delight us, that that evoke wonder and passion, that, and it's different for different people. So again, not everyone needs books for this, um, but yeah. that, that is, you know, and the things that elicit our sense of awe and beauty and uh, even pain, uh, the things that, that touch us, right? Touch our hopes and our fears. Uh, it binds us to each other and, and it, it gives us a, an aspirational worldview that is uh, anything but complacent well i find too the other thing is just the connections that i've made and the admiration that i hold for people who are involved yeah. in doing this uh, in mm -hmm. in making books in promoting books in, in doing everything connected with the books it's a sense of admiration for these people that again i i'm so pleased to to celebrate them basically that's right that's beautiful Absolutely. yeah okay so how do you organize and arrange a room in order to make the best browsing experience possible it's a great question and i am a strong proponent of there being no answer to that <laughs> beyond yeah of course you are of course you are the idiosyncratic uh the idiosyncratic <laughs> The desires of yeah there's a great stevens line um the arrangement contains <laughs> the desire of the artist but one confides in what has no concealed creator one walks easily the unpainted shore accepts the world as anything but sculpture he says and there's something yeah. about the arrangement yeah. that does contain the desire of the artist that creates this impression of the unpainted shore and that is at its most sublime what what uh a great collection can do is feel necessary. But Manguel, our purple, uh, a purple prosy friend, who I don't think is purple at all, but I, I'll go along with you there, has this great line about how every book is ultimately ultimately needs to be liberated from the section to which it's been sentenced, <laughs> uh, which I think is uh, again another uh, great point about uh, heterodoxy. And I, I, you know, I, I came yeah. out of an orthodox world that uh, these books. You know, we, we give them genres and for the market we'll put you know and then to help the reader find them we'll, we'll put the labels on them and i think those are important and arranging the books is important it's one of the things the assemblage is an important part of book selling uh, but ultimately uh, the, the books that we love and the books that endure they're singular uh, and they can't be they're they're incomparable uh, they, they aren't they are it can't be compared to anything else uh, which is part of why when books are banned our authors are banned uh, and I say well I'll just sell them something else you want to read Salman Rushdie? Well, here, we're not going to sell Salman Rushdie. I got something else for you. Like, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. Uh, you get, you know, that voice is, is a singular voice. Yeah. 
it's interesting how our brain works too though it's by association so mm -hmm. you know you can uh, you can read one book but it's going to trigger off all sorts of other things that you've read or ideas about what to read right it's, absolutely uh one of the things i do, here there's a there's a couple things about this though looking at um new independent bookstores versus used bookstores yeah a publisher made a comment to me recently about the fact that it was actually a bit of a sore spot because used bookstores publishers and authors don't benefit from any of the sales in those used bookstores and yet i love book used bookstores better than any other kind of bookstore me too Boy, if I if I if I would have been hired by a used bookseller back in the day, I, that's the path I always wanted. I love a used bookstore, and that's true for libraries too. Libraries are not. I mean, libraries do. There is some uh, payment. Not much. Uh, well, this is where again we have to find different ways to finance the work, and and I think that part of what I love and what you love. You were talking about how you admire all these people in the industry. So do I. And I want the remuneration to be appropriate so that we can continue to draw people into this industry because making books is a lot of work. Uh, it's not, yeah. and, and, and we shouldn't undervalue that work. Uh, and that includes the work of used and rare book dealers. Their work has been undervalued, especially uh, now that we have you know the marketplace, the Amazon marketplace, and all that. Uh, you know, ABE books, and and uh, people can just figure out the value of a book without the expertise which is yes democratize the knowledge is fine but but we have lost something really important uh, yes. in, in losing that industry uh well, that all they know all most people know many people know all they know is the price that's it exactly that's the point yeah. you're exactly yeah. right yeah that's the point they don't understand what goes into that why why these books matter and and i am someone i'm not a collector I should say I have a huge collection, but I don't. I don't care about the book as object. I care about what's in it, um, or I should say, uh, primarily. Oh no, 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 no! That's wrong. That's wrong. Oh, is that wrong? Well, that's sorry. Wrong. I, uh -huh. I have a different opinion. Let's put it that way. That's that's totally <laughs> fair. Well, so so for me, like I, I would buy, uh, you know, a twenty dollar version of a, a book that might sell for five hundred dollars because I want to read it. I would buy a five hundred dollar book to read, and I would tear it up and read it because uh, I, I want to spend time <laughs> with these books, and I'm not, I'm not, uh, holding them so that they you know appreciate value. And I, I respect people who do. I like looking at uh, you know I, I like going to the um, uh, oh my god what's it called. That great library, uh, the Morgan Library, for instance, and looking yeah. at these beautiful, beautiful objects. Yeah. Uh, but uh, ultimately, I just want to take that character out of the case and read it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes, of uh, course. Of course, there's the content. But I mean, uh, it's just not much better thing to do than to, like, I'm, I'm into these incel, not with a C, but with an S, incel Verlag books. German books that were made in the, you know, around the 20s that were the sort of uh, progenitor of the King Penguin books. Uh -huh. And just having those yeah, and just absolutely. admiring those, it's like looking at a work of art. It's, you absolutely. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, I, I completely agree with that. I agree with you there. And I have many, many books uh, that, like, uh, for instance, my Paul Valerie collection, I have the complete volumes edition, but I also have, um, other volumes that I just I like to have I like to engage in different ways. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I'm interested in engagement. I'm not interested in putting it behind glass. Uh, and people who put it behind glass yes. is that's fine. Yes. I, you know, I have no problem with yes. that. And I yeah. even have, you know, family heirlooms. I have my grandfather's 
and Yaakov, which is a, a, a abridgment of the Talmud uh, in five volumes. And I, use, I was using it over the weekend. I use it all the time. And it'll, it'll fall apart at some point, and I'm okay with that. I'd rather it get used than uh, uh, remain on the shelf unopened. Uh, but all of that said, the, the, this whole point about used booksellers in that industry, I can't speak to it. Um, I think yeah. it's deeply important. I, yeah, okay. Um, we talk about this new model that's needed then. So just looking here, page 101. If our societal goal is to make homo economicus a more rational actor and homo civicus a more enlightened citizen, then we must acknowledge that our systems have been indisputably ineffective. So, so yeah, we did touch on that. I just wonder a bit more, like, what, what, what can we do then? It's, what, what can we do? Well, I think this is, a, so the point that you're um, referencing is it's part of the value chapter, and it's where I, I do, t- again, talk about the ways in which even in a capitalist society, we, we aren't actually acting rationally. I mean, the idea of capitalism is that the marketplace uh, sorts things out because we're essentially rational actors who value the things that mean something to us and will pay the that value on, on the open marketplace if there isn't if there is an intervention by government forces uh, but that's not true because the fact is the things that we value the most aren't uh, we're actually not and, I, and I, there's a very long section in the book and it's the only thing that even comes close to an argument where i talk about you know the price of a, of a pack of cigarettes or the price of a slice of pizza and a, and a, and a coke in 1994 when i was reading james baldwin's tell me how long the train's been gone which was the same price and how you know we just don't we don't really think in terms of value when it comes to these meaningful things that are intangible and they're frankly all the most important things in the world you know yes and so that's and that's really the the point is and maybe there is there are economists who can help us figure that out because in fact you know if you, you know economics one on one there there is conversation about extra economic value and the ways in which societies can support that even within a capitalist system we, we just again have not as booksellers been shockingly because we we deal in words all day but the rhetoric hasn't been there we don't value ourselves and and I think too often we end up just kind of I, I say this with love for my people but like whining about our condition instead of instead of yeah but how can we get people to pay for it though well we begin by by acknowledging that the retail model is broken and that's not the way to do it is is to have people pay for it at the register it's to have our society pay for it in ways that are not necessarily at the register and so finding ways to to fund the work the way that a lot of publishers do uh, is important. We look at something like journalism, long-form investigative journalism, and local journalism. These are these are critically important civic endeavors that were set up in the, in the 20th century. Were you know paid for by advertising dollars that were about it's about circulation. And one of our most important and critical um, pillars of society was essentially about advertising for used cars or whatever it was. And yeah. then it broke. And yeah. you know, Craig, Craigslist broke it. And it broke. And now what are we doing? We see the effects of it, but also we see people coming together that are not, you know, tax exempt for not for profits coming together and saying, we need to save this. This is important and we need to spend money on it. And there is no debate anymore. There's no public square anymore. There's no civic conversation. Well, bookstores can help with all of that and book publishers can help with all of that. And we need to appeal to a civic mindedness, to a recognition of what what it feels like to be a child in a community that has book spaces and how that child grows and that sense of possibility in a way that one cannot get in, on a computer screen. They get different possibilities and there are a lot of good ones, but not this. And so I just think that these kinds of 
arguments are the arguments and what's the answer about how to pay for it no one has the answer but we certainly if we came together to try and solve the problem and we articulated the problem certainly a bunch of really smart people can do it and frankly a lot of wealthy people have been well served by these institutions and these books and they would give money if we just gave them a good reason we just haven't given them a good reason they said we'll run a better business and, and be a better bookseller and you know our, our mutual friend james dawn has said that well the good bookstores are the ones who survive well actually i, I disagree and I, we have a different he and i have a different definition of what a good bookstore is. I think he's wonderful. His bookstores are wonderful. I think that Barnes & Noble uh, is in good hands, in the best hands that they could be. For now. For now. I'm not going to get into all that. That's out of my <laughs> purview, but you and I both know what you mean by it, and I agree. Uh, and I, I had the privilege of uh, you know speaking with uh, James Dawn publicly in the UK at Foils uh, as part of a, a larger panel that was discussing my book, and he was very gracious about it and under, understood, I think, my perspective. I understand his. I worked at Barnes & Noble when I started and they were a wonderful company to work for. I mentioned how Amazon pays better than independent bookstores. Well, Barnes & Noble uh, in the 90s certainly did a lot better for booksellers than a lot of independent bookstores. Uh, and I might get in trouble for saying that, but it's true. And they had domestic partner benefits back in the 90s. They had they have 401k, things that are professional level. And this is for hourly booksellers. And so I was one of those. And I felt very lucky to have, have grown up uh, with Barnes and Noble. And you know, I'm from New York. It's a, it's a hometown bookstore for me. And I, I really hope they succeed. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite conversations over the years was with Richard Nash about um, the value of a book. Huh. And it came up in conversation that, you know, for 25 bucks, you can basically take the equivalent of of a sea cruise. Let's <laughs> it's like a two Amen. week sea cruise or a 20 year. Uh, sea cruise. And Amen. how much do, how much do one of those babies cost? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, there's no question. Well, this is the point about, you know, homo economicus and the rational actor. Uh, we're not thinking rationally about the things that will provide us with the most meaning and purpose in life. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Okay. I would be remiss. I want to. I want to share. Um, you know, we we also just started two new publishing imprints. Yeah, and one okay. of them in particular is really related to this. It's called Ode Books, O D E Books, and it's part of. It's an imprint of Prickly Paradigm Press, which is a uh, a small press that Marshall Solomon, the great anthropologist, uh, founded and ran, and it has these fifteen thousand to forty thousand word like diatribes against anything you think you care about. Like you care about university presses, nope, they're awful. Museums, terrible. Brunch, no good. Like there are these diatribes about it. Now I I am not a, a diatribe type person. I am, I am an enthusiast. And before Marshall died, we've we've been part owners of it for a long time. But before Marshall died, I asked him how he would feel about us doing an imprint where we did celebrations of and same length same kind of book you know, old of book work and we have you know booksellers and critics and publishers and editors and philanthropists uh, basically share these oblique celebrations of, of book work and uh, we our first two books are going to be out in 2024 and it's uh, Paul Yamazaki the legendary bookseller from City Lights over 50 years there yes he blurbs your book quite nicely he did, yeah. Well, and we're actually publishing his book. Uh, okay. That'll come out next year. And then Donna Seaman, who uh, is a legend, who's the fiction editor of Booklist and has written, I think, five books and has done more for American literary culture or as much as just about anyone. And if you haven't interviewed her yet, uh, I'd highly no. recommend 
Thank you. Yeah. She used to have a she used to have a radio show where she would interview major authors, and um, she's published quite a few books, but never a, a personal book about her own life in reading. And those two will come out next year, uh, and uh, we want to mm. really raise the profile of what it means to to do book work and not to do it in a didactic way. Uh, again, the, the books will be stylistically interesting. Paul Yamazaki is one of the legends, uh, as is Donna Seaman, and uh, to, for them to tell their stories, I think for for um, future generations is a, is a real gift. And these are books that will be in print for decades. Uh, so we're really pleased about that. And there's another imprint that we started called Seminary Co-op Offsets, which we've started with Northwestern University Press. And the first book is at, just came out a month ago to the day. Uh, and it's a book called Divine Days by Leon Forrest. It is one of the masterpieces of global literature. It is a Ulysses for the South Side of Chicago. Uh, Tony Morrison edited his first three books, and this is the first book he did without her. And the first three were these lapidary, gorgeous books with biblical titles that clearly have, um, uh, you know, a lot of Tony Morrison in it, but a lot of Leon Forrest, who's brilliant in it as well. And then uh, Divine Days was the one he did on his own uh, at 1,100 pages, and it is a jazz-infused, again, Ulysses-type story that takes one week in the mid-60s and describes the life of a city uh, in this beautiful way. The voices are amazing. It's musical. It's actually, there's an excerpt in the current issue of Harper's, uh, and it's it's getting a little bit of attention now, but our hope is to bring back this uh, masterpiece and to help uh, establish in the way that Sarah McNally, our mutual friend, also uh, McNally Editions, and uh, there are other uh, Dan Wells does Oasis has a bookstore. Uh, there are plenty of other models right now of bookstores for publishers. And frankly, that's, this goes way back. All, this is bringing back something that used to exist, uh, and we're really excited about the future. Have you ever have you ever sold any books? I'm just asking. What do you mean? That, what I mean is, you sounded like a bookseller there. <laughs> Well, this is the point, right? Where well, that's publishers and booksellers. Like, like it's funny. I was just in Seattle at the American Booksellers Association conference, and it was like after hours, and and it's a bunch of publishers and booksellers and I'm just walking yeah. around with divine days. Like, you have to read this. I'm like, like, dude, take take a night off. And I'm like, what yeah. do you mean? Like, what, this, is, this is why we're here. Like, we're really good at selling things. My hope is that we can take this enthusiasm that we've honed on behalf of individual yeah. books and sell instead. The idea of the bookstore and the idea that's the wonderful. That is so good. Yeah, and that's what my book that, is trying to do. Yes, that that is, and that really is it, isn't it? It's it's bottling enthusiasm. Basically. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Bottling enthusiasm and having the discernment and um, the, the paying attention enough to match the reader to the book. Which is, I think, yes, really help yes. the industry because the publishers can put out the books, the authors can write them, but we really are the we are the last uh, stop before the 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 reader, and we're the ones who match the readers in the books, uh, and that is uh, an incredible uh, professional skill. It is a talent. Uh, it is an art. Yeah. And my colleagues are all awe inspiring, and thank you for featuring them on, on this show. Well, um, just sort of changing gear slightly and winding down a bit. But but first of all, you know, as a bookseller, you you can talk really well, but you have to listen better because, because <laughs> you, right. can't, you know what? You just don't go up to a, someone and start blabbering about a book. You want to know, well, what do you like? That's exactly right. right. Yep. Yeah. And you got to pay attention. And absolutely. Okay. I don't want to let go of this because this is part of what I want to do when I'm doing uh, your profile. I think I'm going to do your profile now, even if you don't want me to. I'm going to write a Great. profile of you, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, 
and and part of that profile is is I, I've said I admire people in the book business and and what they do business and, and not business like collectors for example as well but uh, I I'm really I haven't really figured this out yet but because I admire these people I want to know how they live so. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, maybe you could help me explain this, but for example, like, okay, what's your favorite uh, book event around the world? Oh, like not book event like we had in the store, but book event. I mean, Winter Institute is my favorite book event, uh, which, which just happened uh, because it is, it's independent booksellers coming together on behalf of bookstores and there are authors and publishers there and we love them and I, you know, I think where is that editors. and where is that it moves around it was just in seattle but it moves around every year okay um, okay yeah, that, is, that is my favorite that would be for our listeners they can go to that as well right no it's just for booksellers the one the one that's oh, open to the so, public yeah and i love and i don't mean to be um i mean this is a little Anyway, uh, the uh, Jaipur Literature Festival, which I've had the privilege of going to twice now, is uh, one of the most inspiring things I've ever seen. Uh, the reading culture in India is uh, next to none, and to see so many people come together on behalf of literature and books and serious, many serious books uh, is wonderful. I also last year had the um, opportunity for the first time to go to the miami book fair which ah uh, yes kaplan, mitch uh, mitch uh, kaplan he is a he is a hero to us all and he is, a, yeah. he is an absolute yeah. model of what it means to be a thoughtful generous intelligent community-minded bookseller yeah. who also thinks beyond just the bookstore he's an absolute visionary uh, i feel lucky to be uh in, in the same industry as him and i got to see what he what he built uh firsthand and it was beautiful that is a beautiful event. Uh, I love his store too. With you can go and sit in the middle of it, Absolutely. outside. <laughs> Absolutely, that's exactly right. That's okay, right. so favorite cafe restaurants in Jaipur then, and in Miami. Where do you like? Where did you like to go? I mean, Jaipur. I don't. I'm just at the fair uh, and at the hotel, uh, so okay. And then, and then I'll go. And then I, there's like some, you know, uh, street food I like uh, right around the festival. Um, and Miami, I have no idea. I've only been once. Bummer. I couldn't even tell you okay. a single, a single, <laughs> a single meal. I, I don't remember. Okay, meal. okay. I remember we'll move, the drinks. We'll... There were a lot of drinks. <laughs> I don't remember any meals. Okay, uh, well, let's move on then. What do you uh -huh. do for a good time? Uh, it's books. It's for me. It's books. Bookstores. Yeah, more or less nonstop. I a lot of conversation. I mean, I've uh, a lot of dear friendships. Uh, I also like to play music, so the music as well. But I, it's really like my life is consumed by books, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, what do you play? Uh, guitar mainly, but stringed instruments. Uh, and uh, I, I absolutely love music. I love playing it. Uh, Favorite music. Well, Ani DeFranco, who has a new uh, uh, book out, a uh, children's book, uh, I think I would trade probably three quarters of my library for her uh, catalog. Uh, I love it so much. And uh, I think she is just an absolute uh, master as a songwriter. And she has accompanied me through many, many, many dark moments uh, in life and great moments. Uh, so, Favorite brand of shirt? I I don't have one. I, all of my shirts are I buy used. There's a store in Santa Fe that sells used cowboy shirts for ten dollars a piece, 
that's basically, and I have some of my shirts are 10, 15 years old. Uh, look, I'm a bookseller. I don't, I, I can't afford that oh, shit. Yeah. Shoes, same thing, thrift stores yeah, or what? I'm, I'm wearing a pair of Blundstones that I bought seven years ago that I was very nice. happy to see at Heartland Fall Forum in 2018 in Cleveland, Ohio. Emma Straub, the great Emma Straub, was another bookseller I admire greatly, was on stage. And some people were like, oh, she's a novelist. She's not a bookseller. I saw her Blundstones and I knew she was a bookseller. Anyway, I've had these for seven years. I should probably get a new pair. I just got a pair for Christmas. They're the oh, best. Yeah, yeah, they're wonderful. Favorite food? I don't know. Boy, these are... It doesn't matter. I, I've never done this, Jeff. I've never done this before. It's a new yeah. direction. I'm I'm not sure if I'm going to take this direction or not. That's all right. Uh, I like it it I depends like if this. I've never been asked these questions. I'm like, I, oh, shit, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I really don't know. I can't okay. Answer. Favorite bookstore aside from your own? If Can I answer with a couple of different ones? Yeah. I'll tell you why. I'll do different categories. Okay. Um, so my heart is with Moe's Bookstore and uh, Moe's Books in uh, Berkeley, California. Uh, and that is probably like hands down my favorite. I greatly admire source booksellers in Detroit uh, and the owners, mother, daughter. If you haven't interviewed them, I'd highly recommend it. No. Jan oh. Janet Jones and Allison Turner. Janet is in her 80s and was a librarian for years. And their, their store is beautiful. It is a beautiful store. So I, I, I greatly admire that. And uh, and then I would add Powell's Books in Chicago, which is the original Powell's book. Yeah, I know that. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah and it's nice. right down the street from me. And uh, so I get to go to the Regenstein Library at the University of Chicago and Powell's Books. I get one of the best libraries in the world and one of the best used bookstores in the world. And I'm grateful for that. They got some good remainders there, too, like bigger art books and such. Yeah, they are. They're a dealer in remainders, too. Um, so. Yeah. Uh, what's the best advice you've ever received in your life? Uh, I think uh, it was it was kind of um, said in a bit of a dark way, but I think there's a wisdom to it, which is that we alone are responsible for our fulfillment and for our happiness and no one can do it for us. And it was my mother who told me that when I was about 10 years old. Uh, and she was clearly uh, um, distraught about something. And she said something effective, you know, you're born alone, you die alone. Don't live for others. You alone uh, can, you know, I don't remember exactly how she said that last part, but that we're, we're, we alone are responsible for our fulfillment, meaning, happiness, serenity. Do you have kids? Nope. What advice? I, lo I love kids. I do love kids, though, and I have plenty okay. of plenty of. Uh, they're not officially like God kids because I'm not. I'm Jewish. Uh, God forbid anything happened to them uh, that I would be uh, taken over, and I, I'm grateful for that. I love the kids in my life. And what is the best advice you could give them then? Those kids. Yeah. What do you want them to know? I want them to. Follow their their passions and their curiosities, and recognize that every day is judgment day, and we're the only judges, and uh, that ultimately they need to answer to themselves. Not much different than what my mom told me. Yeah. Okay. What's your TV favorite TV show? Um, I watch 
Very little TV. Um, I have loved The Wire, but that was a long time ago. I recently I loved that show. I'm not going to remember what it's called. Uh, it was on a university campus. Oh God, I'm not going to remember what it was called. It was really good. Anyway, no worries. I yeah. Okay. I love I love stand up comedy. I love classic stand up comedy. I met Richard Pryor is a as a tremendous influence, uh, and I I'm interested in that whole tradition. Okay. What's your favorite luggage? I don't have one. <laughs> I don't have one. Thrift, thrift store? Thrift store? I've never thought of luggage as a thing. I have no idea. Uh, okay. Yeah. This should be for the rich and famous. This question should be I, for the rich and famous. <laughs> it's funny. I live I live a very... Um, <laughs> it's, part of my, it's part of my Orthodox Jewish upbringing. I was kind of like raised in a shtetl. And so I just didn't yeah. like engage with any of this stuff. So I, I didn't even know it all existed. Uh, so anyway. Okay. Who do you admire the most and why? Uh, living or dead? Let's go one of each. Uh, living is my mother um, who has more integrity than anyone I've ever met. And she doesn't give a fuck what people think, but she gives a, she gives a shit about people. She cares deeply about people, but she doesn't give a fuck about what they think. And that nice. feels really um, wise. Uh, and... Um, Dead, I would say Leon Forrest. Uh, and Leon Forrest, who wrote, who wrote Divine Days, was, it, it, by all accounts, uh, and I, family, friends, but also bosses and critics have told me this, was an incredibly kind human, very decent and generous, and that he was a genius and, uh, and wrote masterpieces uh, and was kind. That, to me, is, is, yeah. uh, is wonderful. And he also... Um, the way that one of his best students and colleagues, Ken Warren, uh, described him to me, he said, you know, his his modernist impulse was an imperative for him. It was a, it was a literary imperative in order to live a meaningful life. Mo that's how modernism actually uh, helped him create his life in a way that I uh, I really I think I understand and relate to. And I think that there's something about the wholeness that comes from the uh, movement or a, a endeavor like modernism, uh, where we're trying to fit everything in, in and create art and style out of uh, the facts of a life and not be too highfalutin about things. I might sound highfalutin to some of your listeners because I like, you know, my per my prose is purple, my reading tastes <laughs> tend to be a little academic or whatever. <laughs> but I'm actually really like, uh, I'm as blue collar as they get. And I, well, I like the fuck and the shit there. That was all good. right, good. Well, that's all. Yeah, listen, that's uh, Richard Pryor. Uh, I grew up listening to Richard Pryor <laughs> and that stuff's music to me. So, uh, yeah, um, but uh, uh, all of which is to say that Leon Forrest really modeled how to be a human, an artist, a teacher, and a literary citizen in a way that I. Uh, aspire to emulate. Nice. Okay. Have you said everything you want to say about your book? Um. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Okay. Then uh, two final questions. Favorite couple of books of fiction? Um, the Man Without Qualities by Robert Musil. He's throughout the book, isn't he? He sure is. He really yeah, is. he really he mean, is. He means a lot to me. Um, I return to that book a lot. And then uh, Agua Agua Viva by Clarice Lispector, which is a much shorter book, uh, and I absolutely I love that book. 
Nonfiction? Um, the Tao Te Ching is one of the most important books in my life, uh, and I've read it and reread it many times. That's an ancient book for a more contemporary book. Uh, Preeti Tanesha's book, Aftermath, which just won the Gordon Burns Prize, uh, is one of the most moving books I've ever read. Um, and it deals with language and trauma and incarceration and the carceral system and justice and abolition in the face of uh, a great tragedy, um, despite great tragedy. And then another recent book that I loved is a book called Lost and Found by Catherine Schultz. Uh, oh, I love that. Uh, that isn't is, that great? Uh, I just, yeah, it's it's got so much in that book, and it's so, so gorgeous. It's gorgeous, That's just right. like she, just like she is. That's right. That's it's a really special book, and I and talk about prose that's not purple, but is is earnest. It's. It's, it's just it's the just, right side. Uh, just the right side of purple. <laughs> I was gonna say it's purple without being purple. It's that it's and that to me is the very best. Is when it's yeah. not. It's purple, but it's not purple. Well, that's where let's 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 reclaim purple as a compliment. <laughs> uh, let's bring it just along the line so that it's not uh, treacly or saccharine, or, uh, and uh, and it's not mannered or uh, untrue. I mean, that's the thing is that it, it, if it's true, if it's written in a true way, then there's no, it's not possible to be purple. So you read someone yeah. like Annie Dillard is true, and so the, those those words in anyone else's mouth is per, those are purple words, but not in her yeah. mouth. I'd say that about Alberto Manguel too, uh, and I, I'm a great admirer of uh, Emerson, for instance, uh, who's uh, to some people that, that that writing is purple. To me, not only is it true, it's it's rugged and difficult and challenging and um, and tough. It's tough. It's it's yeah. grief. It's grief infused, and yet to some, it's uh, you know it's it's purple, but I'm okay with that. I'd rather it be purple than cynical. And above all, it just needs to be true. You, you, Jeff, your book, it's blue, though. <laughs> it's orange and blue like the New York it's orange I, and blue. I grew, I grew up a, a great fan of. Uh, I had nothing to and do it with doesn't it. have a dust jacket. That's No, but it has great end papers. Look at those end papers. Well, yes. Well, they've got, I love the little kind of. They're not quite polka dots, but uh, right. yeah, the end papers, are, yeah. Are, are One of the of things I love about Princeton University Press, who published that book, and they're a wonderful, wonderful press, you look on the copyright page, you'll see credits. And so the designer gets credit, the editors, the copy editors, the publicists get credit. And we don't do enough of that in this industry. And I know there's a lot of conversation about putting translators on the covers of books. And I feel like every press, and a few of them have it now, but every press should have credits on the publisher page. Uh, or somewhere in the book, uh, because books are not made by one person. You know, the author's name might be on the spine or the cover, but the book is made by so many people. And the communities that create books deserve to be valued for their work. And we don't do enough to celebrate that. Well, your acknowledgement pages are just filled with people. That's true. Uh, I'm jealous of all the people you know. There, I'll bet you there's a ton of cool people in there, too. There's a ton of cool people because yeah, booksellers are <laughs> booksellers are cool. Uh, yeah, our, yeah. As our community builders, I have a lot of community builders. I work on the south side of Chicago with a lot of people who are not booksellers, who are doing work in in housing or in education uh, or in cultural programming uh, and create and, and creating community in a way that I think 
can and should inspire us all. And if any of your listeners have not visited the South Side of Chicago, it is one of the most vibrant communities in the world. Very good. There's a literary tourism plug there then. Absolutely. Well, Jeff, uh, thank you for being such an edgy purple guy. It's just, <laughs> it's just really, it was such a pleasure to talk to you about your book. Uh, thank I, you. I really you. appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for everything you do. I appreciate it. Jeff Deutsch is the director of the Seminary Co-op in Chicago and the author of In Praise of Good Bookstores. Thanks again. Thank you.